Hello, my name is Carlos Pasqual. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the Sierra Week conversation. These have been exclusive conversations with individuals who are at the forefront of the energy industry, but also on economics, finance, and technology. And today we have an opportunity to talk with two extraordinary individuals who are at the, the very center of the concept of resiliency in energy. One is um, Eric Salagi, the CEO of Florida Plower and Light. Eric, a pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Carlos. It's great to be here. And then also Sean Stavridge, who is the CEO of Corpus Christi, the Port of Corpus Christi. Nice to be here, Carlos. Together with Eric and Sean, one of the things that we want to do is to be able to explore the issues that are involved with preparedness and resilience and recovery, how we think about scenarios related to the challenges of hurricane season. And Shana, I'd like to start with you on whether the pandemic has put the United States at greater risk. Is there a greater challenge in preparation and response for this hurricane season than we have seen in other years? Well, Carlos, certainly this year uh, with the hurricane season that we find ourselves in 2020, uh, coupled with the pandemic, resources have been a challenge. So I think the short answer to your question is yes, uh, there is a greater risk and a vulnerability during a, a heightened hurricane season as we're seeing this year. Uh, but it's because of the additional resource constraints that have been placed on organizations, both government and private, uh, as a result of the novel coronavirus pandemic. So as we find ourselves in an active hurricane season and here in Corpus Christi, we just saw a category one hurricane come through here about two weeks ago, Hurricane Hannah. And uh, as you know, hurricanes are named in alphabetical order. Hannah came three years and uh, not quite, sorry, two years and 11 months before uh, or after, I should say, Hurricane Harvey, also an H hurricane, which uh, arrived here in 2017 and in late August. And here we are in 2020, and we saw Hurricane Hannah uh, a full month before Harvey. So th that was really a challenge for us. We've we have people that are uh, social distancing, working remotely. Um, we are considered critical infrastructure, uh, and therefore our employees are categorized as essential employees uh, by the Department of Homeland Security. So it does give us some additional resources available to us. But nevertheless, whether it's a, a hurricane, a pandemic, or certainly uh, the combination thereof and the economic destruction that we've seen, resources have become more constrained. And so more, uh, more organizations are really gonna need to find ways to work collaboratively uh, to try and shore up whatever resource shortfalls uh, they may find themselves in. Eric, let's pick up on that resource constraint issue. I was struck before of what you've told me about being able to staff a control center how you do social distancing in that environment. Can you prepare effectively given the constraints that you have on people, but also the way that you can function and operate? You can, uh, but it is a challenge. And it is, uh, it's something that we just need to recognize is going to end up creating uh, you know, less productivity and, and in all likelihood will lead to, unfortunately, longer and more prolonged type of restorations 
particularly after any kind of major event. Um, you know, we just had a tropical storm that rolled through here and we were fortunate. Um, you know, she stayed mostly offshore, although we still had uh, tropical storm force winds of 70 miles an hour hit our service territory and we had roughly 40,000 customers knocked out. And so we mobilized our full workforce in preparation for that and then brought resources in from out of state. I will tell you, it took us longer to get some of the resources in because uh, a lot of them were trying to figure out if they could make the trip. Uh, several of them had some concerns about coming to Florida and uh, some questions about whether or not they were gonna be required to be quarantined when they went back home. Um, and then other areas such as how do you actually keep uh, safe distances between a workforce. In our case, uh, for this tropical storm, uh, we had 7,000 people in the field before the storm and 3,000 people from the company that were fully mobilized before the storm. How do you keep them properly socially distanced and at the same time maintain productivity? Uh, it can be done, but it is a significant challenge. It adds to the expense, no doubt about it, and it requires you to really think differently. Your footprint is different. Staging sites you put together are different. How you feed people are different. You talked about the command centers. How we staff our command center is different. We used to have uh, 120 plus people in our command center. We now have broken that into two separate command centers. Sounds easy to do, but our command center is a category five building that's purposely built to be a command center. We actually had to recreate that at a category five hotel conference center and, uh, and bring in fiber optic in advance and get the table set up and and we split the teams into uh, an alpha and a bravo team so we could make sure that god forbid we end up where we have uh, exposure and and positive tests in the middle of a hurricane uh, restoration effort that we can quickly and nimbly move from uh, the alpha team to the bravo team and keep the restoration process going on so it can be done it takes a lot of planning takes a lot of preparation uh, adds incremental cost absolutely remains to be seen how much uh, but it's measured in for us in millions of dollars not not tens of thousands of dollars unfortunately and uh, i think we'll be able to handle it but it is going to pose a lot of challenges as we've just seen in the northeast same thing they've gone through right now they're still restoring power after a week in parts of connecticut and new jersey and uh, and clearly part of that is just productivity being impacted by the pandemic. Yeah. Sean, Eric's taken us through the people aspect of this, protecting infrastructure. How much harder does it get? How much harder is it working with individual companies that are inevitably part of those protection plans? Well, infrastructure, particularly critical infrastructure, is uh, can be very difficult to protect. Uh, you think about uh, us down here in, in Texas, a tremendous amount of energy-related infrastructure, uh, refineries, uh, which we have here in, in Corpus Christi, which refine a tremendous amount of transportation fuels that are sent to other parts of the United States, as well as our trading partners uh, and allies uh, around the world. Uh, South Florida has a heavy dependency on Texas refining capacity. So making sure that we can protect that infrastructure uh, is something that we drill and exercise every day, we plan for it, that's the preparedness. Uh, but when you have a large area of responsibility like seaports typically do, or certainly in the case of Florida Power and Light, Eric's uh, area of responsibility, 
you, you really have to prioritize those resources. And in the case of, of uh, seaports like the Port of Corpus Christi, we work with other partners, uh, federal, uh, state, and local partners. And during an event, um, there isn't going to be any single agency that has all the resources it needs. And that's why we've all got to band together. And that's where working together with those relationships, planning, and doing the exercises before an event so everybody knows what their role is during an event is really the key to increase any region's resiliency. Excellent. That's a great transition to the issues of communication. And both of you have stressed that to me in conversations that we've had. So Eric, maybe if you can pick up on this and talk about the range of stakeholders that need to participate in an effective response, how you communicate with them and how much of that really has to happen in advance. Oh, it's, uh, it's all about really uh, getting this done in advance. And Sean's absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the critical infrastructure can be protected, but it must be done years in advance uh, because this is infrastructure that, you know, really requires a lot of careful thinking and investment um, measured again in many millions of dollars. And Florida is a good example. I mean, Sean talked about our, our reliance on Texas refineries, and it's really the whole Gulf Coast region refineries, because we have no refineries here in Florida, and yet we're the third largest state in the country, and so all the gasoline that we use, as an example, comes into our ports. We have 15 deep water ports, of which Florida Power and Light serves more than half of those, and so we went back after the 04-05 hurricane season, and the very hard lessons learned there, and worked with our ports, as well as with each county, to determine what are the most critical infrastructure facilities in the county. And, and with the port, what are the area, uh, ports I should say, what are the areas of, of greatest vulnerability? And then went in and rebuilt those systems uh, in order to engineer out, if you will, those vulnerabilities. So we hardened our ports. We replaced all wood structures with concrete and steel structures. We put a lot of infrastructure underground, recognizing that the ports are one of the key lifebloods for us to be able to start the recovery process for the state of Florida after a major event occurs, because that's where all, not just gasoline, but food and water and critical supplies come in, it's through our ports. Now the communications area is, is broad and, and it covers a number of different agencies that you really need to coordinate well in advance. Local authorities, state authorities, federal authorities, uh, you know, you've got a lot of people that suddenly swoop in when a storm occurs, as an example, that if you had no conversations with before, uh, then you spend the first few days at the very least, if not the entire storm, simply trying to figure out who should be where and, and who should be responsible for what. And if you're doing that, you're, you're way behind the curve and, and frankly, you're wasting precious hours and days arguing about who's responsible for doing what. So the key is coordination well in advance and then actually drilling it, training around it, finding where the weaknesses are, finding who can communicate with whom and who can't and why that is. Sometimes it's simple things like even having the right radios or the frequencies. Sounds, sounds pretty basic, but you'd be shocked how often it is that people simply can't communicate because they haven't tried it before. Uh, or even understanding uh, what their resources are available. Florida Power and Light is a good example. We learned hard lessons many years before 
So now every one of our key personnel actually has a communications pack, which includes cell phones from each of the major networks. So there's actually three cell phones in each communication pack, one for each of the major carriers. There's also a satellite phone. So we have the opportunity for somebody to be able to find a variety of different ways to be able to continue to communicate. If you can't communicate and you're blind to what's going on in the field, then you're dead in the water. So communication is critical, not just during the storm, but particularly in the months and even years before you have a major event. I'm Sean, then picking up on that, given the challenges that our entire country is facing, everybody at a federal and state level, have you been able to maintain the same level of engagement with federal state authorities? Do you sense that there's, there's still the same kind of capacity to be engaging with you and responsive with you, despite all the other challenges that they're facing right now? Certainly uh, all agencies at the federal, state, and certainly at the municipal levels all across the country uh, have some resource challenges. Uh, and, and, and we're not unscathed here. But I will say that some of the tools, the collaboration tools that we're all familiar with and are using uh, even today, we've found that we're able to communicate as effectively, if not more so, uh, with uh, different partners at the federal, uh, state, and certainly here at the local level, uh, because people know that not only are we first and foremost here to protect lives, but we're certainly here to protect the livelihoods that go with it and keep the wheels of commerce flowing again. And that's really what seaports are. Seaports are, if you ever lifted the hood of an economy, uh, what you would likely see under the hood is a seaport. Uh, because of all the trade and the ebbs and flows of goods movement. So uh, making sure that we are communicating, you know, at the, at the federal level with a multitude of federal agencies that have responsibility for the waterway here, whether it's the United States Coast Guard, the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, uh, certainly uh, Customs and Border Protection uh, for international goods movement and the securitization there. So we have to continue to maintain those relationships. Now, oftentimes those meetings in the past were in person, but today we're seeing all of that being done virtually. So, you know, it's really about ensuring that everybody has those collaborative tools and you stay as connected with your partners and your stakeholders as you can. So let's build from that to discussion about scenarios. And Eric, you, you already began the critical point about the need for drilling looking at scenarios that could occur, preparedness ahead of time. Are you able in this kind of environment to really drill for the worst case scenarios? Is, is there a difference in the way that you need to think about the kinds of situations that may strike you from what you would normally be drilling for in a hurricane season? Well, the short answer is yes, you can absolutely drill. We did. Uh, we always have an annual storm. We call it a dry run here at FPL, where typically we'll have three to 4,000 employees engaged, and then we'll also engage local and state and federal stakeholders as well and get them involved. Uh, we always do that the first week of May. This year, we delayed uh, that until the uh, almost the end of June, and we did that intentionally because we wanted to uh, have a little more time to prepare for the actual real live pandemic that was hitting all of us. 
and then to make sure that we were doing everything we could to incorporate the lessons learned so far up to date uh, for how to deal with that. And then we, we adapted to that and we changed our philosophy on how we gathered people, but we put ourselves in a position of, okay, we have a storm, we created one, our meteorologist, it's, it's his opportunity to get free rain and be a little Machiavellian and come up with some kind of crazy scenario. And he created a hurricane that hit us um, on the west coast of Florida and then went, went up the uh, coast. And, and we drilled the company just like we had been hit with a hurricane all the way to actually setting up a staging site so we can understand what does it mean to set up a staging site in a global pandemic. And we also actually pulled the trigger on several vendors and said, we actually want you to deliver some supplies to see what are the supply constraints? Were they able to meet their obligations? Uh, and so a lot of lessons learned. You know, I'm a big believer that, that you have to go through these types of exercises to understand uh, what you don't know. And, and you learn from every single one of these because the one thing that, that I have learned through all of these years of different storms is that every storm is different. And Mother Nature will always throw curveballs, as well as, frankly, human behavior. Uh, people will react differently. Sometimes there'll be mass evacuations. Sometimes, inexplicably, uh, very few people will evacuate. So sometimes the roads are clogged, sometimes they're not. Sometimes hotels are available, sometimes they're not. Uh, a lot of different variables can occur because of human behavior, but almost invariably, Mother Nature will throw some different curveballs. So by drilling and preparing as realistically as possible, my philosophy is you prepare for everything that you possibly can expect based on past experience, based on what you know will definitely occur, based on what you expect would occur on the scenario. So you can build that bandwidth, if you will, to deal with the unexpected. So your team is effectively prepared to deal with everything that is expected so they have the extra capacity to deal with is always occurring and that are the unexpected things that will be thrown at you. And if you do that well, then you, know, you can actually respond in a, in a, in a fashion that you know, I think is, uh, is appropriate and that is safely and very efficiently given the circumstances at hand. So on the theme of curveball, Sean, one of the things that we've been thrown is not only the pandemic, but the economic impacts. And one of them has been the collapse of oil demand together with an oil price war. And in the end, we've had a huge buildup of inventories. For America's energy port, does that complicate the hurricane situation even further? Well, certainly when you see the type of demand destruction that we saw as a result of the global pandemic globally for energy, particularly transportation fuels, of which a fair amount is manufactured right here in Corpus Christi, uh, that's certainly what is what we've been terming a double black swan event, uh, a global pandemic and, of course, the associated economic destruction. Some of that was uh, self-inflicted with the market share war between Saudi Arabia and Russia, albeit short-lived, but had a very acute impact on uh, global crude pricing. And we saw uh, at one point the crude was trading in negative territory, which had never happened before. So uh, certainly the, the state of the economy is first and foremost on people's minds after public health and safety. And so 
when you're talking about trying to respond to multiple events in a way that is first and foremost uh, healthy uh, with the appropriate social distancing. Uh, in our case, during Hurricane Hannah, uh, our emergency operations center was not big enough to handle the full complement of our incident management team. And so therefore, we had to have some of our IMT members participate remotely and virtually, which is the first time that we had ever done that. And you know, Eric's point about uh, you know, being prepared and a lot of the drilling and the pre-planning and the planning, so vital and important. Uh, but even still, if, you know, a year ago you'd said, we're going to have this, this uh, global pandemic, we're going to have this acute uh, demand destruction. And I'm sure Eric can appreciate this. Tom Brady going to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, you know, uh, <laughs> somebody would have said you were, uh, you were crazy to think that. So not only when you're planning, and you're really trying to do the things to be prepared, which the more prepared you are, the more resilient you are during the event, and then the faster you can recover after the event. Um, you know, there are certainly going to be scenarios that nobody could think of. Uh, and that's often the case. We've found ourselves in the last few years in, you know, multiple 500 year floods or hurricanes uh, or other type of, of uh, uh, you know, natural weather event so we're starting to see a frequency and, and an intensity uh, continue to grow. And that's just gonna put more strain on organizations, which means they're really gonna need to do more on the planning side if they're gonna keep a certain level of resiliency. How do you drill your customers and how do you communicate with them? Because they have to do their share. And have you been able to manage those communications to be able to get them to think about longer power outages and what they would do about that kind of situation? Sure, it's a, it's a great question and it's tough, right? Because it is a, um, it's a very difficult time for uh, all of our customers. Uh, you know, Sean talked about the impact of, of what's happened at the port and of course, you know, the impact what's happened to all the states and the Florida is no exception on the economy. And it's very difficult. People really don't want to hear about, uh, you know, what are the what are the future challenges going to bring? But you have to have these conversations uh, to let people know that look, this is a global pandemic uh, is going to have an impact on our ability to respond as quickly as we would like. Um, we're not using it as an excuse. To be clear, I've made it, uh, you know, very clear to all of our employees that it is not an excuse. We're going to do everything we can to get the lights on as quickly as we can, safely uh, as well. But, you know, we, the reality is we may not get the same level of response uh, if we have a major storm hit us from outside states, or it may not be as fast, um, or we may simply have to undertake different type of measures, like I talked about before, for social distancing, which, which just impacts productivity. And I measure everything by the hour uh, when, we, when we end up uh, doing storm response because it's really, storm response is just a function of how many construction man hours of work do you have divided by the number of workers you have divided by a 16 hour work day. And that determines how long it takes to actually get the lights back up for people. And so it's a, uh, you know, every hour counts. And unfortunately, when you have to end up uh, taking on some different type of, uh, of scenarios in order to deal with this pandemic, it's gonna have an impact. So I've been very straightforward with customers in communications with them, both in direct communications uh, by sending them all emails, uh, actually several of them, to uh, text messages. A lot of our customers prefer that or Facebook. 
uh, Instagram, uh, the internet, and then also in, in press conferences that we've held. Uh, I've uh, made no bones about the fact that we are gonna work 24 seven to get the lights back on like we always do. We are not gonna compromise on safety, but we're also not gonna give up. But that's not a substitute uh, for personal responsibility. Everybody should have a storm plan. Everybody should be prepared for what they are going to do uh, if we get hit with a major storm. Because in the end, it's not a question of if we're gonna have a storm hit Florida. It's just a question of when, where, and how bad will it be? Even if it's not this season, it'll be next season. And so you have to be prepared and you have to make sure that there's a lot of personal responsibility involved, whether you're a business or an individual, in understanding what you are going to do in order to weather uh, this type of event, because it will take, in all likelihood, more time than it otherwise would if you get the lights back on. Indeed, you have to be relentless. Uh, if we can switch a little bit to recovery. And Sean, you had already talked about the impossibility of doing everything, that you have to make choices and set priorities. What kind of moral dilemmas do you face in setting those priorities? Well, moral dilemmas really, uh, I think, from the standpoint of recovery, uh, first and foremost, public safety. And from our perspective, if we're still engaged in search and rescue uh, with our police department or our fire department mm -hmm. or uh, you know, the, the Coast Guard or other law enforcement agencies, that's gonna take priority over any business continuity initiative. But very shortly on the heels of that, you have to start getting those, uh, the, those pieces of infrastructure that are critical open again. Uh, because the disruption, particularly in the energy space, uh, energy disruption can actually have uh, a negative impact on the ability for first responders and certainly healthcare workers to do their jobs. So you got to prioritize. And, you know, when you talk about the morality of prioritizing, it, there's no business that's worth a life. And that way we focus on what's going to be most impactful, first and foremost, from a, a life-saving perspective. And then as we talk about trying to get things back up and operational, working with our customers, as, as Eric said, I mean, we, you have to have those relationships with your customers. And you've got to be able to understand what their imperatives are and align your imperatives with theirs. And so that's what we do. Uh, and it really, it's, it's about communication. We're touching our customers uh, every day uh, in communication uh, at my level uh, and all the way throughout the organization. So having those relationships when times are good is really what's going to serve you when times are, are challenging. You don't want to start building those relationships once a crisis has started. Let's throw another complication in here, Eric, which is climate change. So um, Sean had already mentioned the alphabet of, of, of storm naming. And indeed, I, I was in Florida with my father uh, during uh, Hurricane Irma. And I uh, clearly remember that was at the beginning of September. And we're already into Isaias, and uh, that was at the end of July. Uh, how much of a difference has the trend have the trends in climate made in your in the challenges that you face and your ability to be able to mount the responses and the capabilities with the frequency and the speed that's necessary to be effective 
you know, I would say it hasn't really changed from a standpoint of our preparedness on it, because, uh, you know, the first thing is that I remind a lot of folks, uh, even within the company that may not have been here as long, but, you know, it only takes one storm. Uh, Andrew was an A, right, in 1992. It was a devastating Category 5 storm that hit. Uh, yeah, it hit in August, but it was the first one of the season. Uh, you're right. We're already uh, past I now and, uh, and, and, and well into the alphabet. Uh, clearly, we've seen a f more frequent uh, repetition of storms in the past few years. But, you know, for us, it's really just preparing uh, for what could be a, a light or it could be a very heavy season. It makes no difference because it only takes one storm. And, and so you have to really prepare for anything that Mother Nature can throw at you. Um, and that's why it's really what you do in the off season that makes the biggest difference of how you're going to perform during hurricane season or any other type of event that can come at you. Um, I, I, I'm fortunate that I don't get ice storms, um, but, you know, tornadoes can happen anytime and they're smaller in a geographic sense, but they're much more devastating uh, for where, wherever they do hit from a wind perspective. And so, you know, we really try to work hard year round just to make sure we're prepared. And, and you, you asked earlier, Sean, uh, answered the question about kind of the, the moral dilemma, if you will. You know, this really goes to, again, having a conversation with, with your local uh, stakeholders and authorities and, and trying to figure out what are the critical areas that you need to, to really address, particularly in advance. I mean, look, every customer is critical. I want every customer to have the lights on. I don't want them to lose power to begin with, but if they, if they do, I want them back up as quickly as possible. But the truth is, if everybody is, is a first priority, then nobody's a first priority. And so what we do is we, we work with local authorities at the county level, and we serve 35 counties at Florida Power and Light. And in the, in the off season, if you will, we meet with them regularly and, and determine what are the critical areas that really need to be worked on. And we do that kind of work in advance. So I talked earlier about the ports. We've also hardened all of our 911 facilities, fire stations, police stations, um, we've gone through the, every major intersection where there are gas stations and ATMs to make sure that those areas also are hardened, key areas where there's grocery stores along with a gas station and an ATM. Those have been hardened over the past decade. We've put $4 billion in to hardening our system and putting infrastructure either in concrete steel or underground to make sure that in advance of a storm, those are really as prepared and resilient as possible. And then after a storm hits, we have a critical infrastructure list that each county has reviewed and assigned a, a, a prioritization to in advance of each storm season. And then we adhere to that list. And we start restoring based on those critical infrastructure facilities that the county and the county leaders, because they know best, they live there day in and day out, working with us, we'll go and start to prioritize those folks as quickly as possible. The two of you are filled with such pragmatic wisdom. I, I wish we can keep this conversation going for a long time. I, just one quick question for both of you, just to get your, your guidance to business and customers. And Sean, first, what can your clients, the users of the port do to help themselves? Really understanding, Carlos, what the emergency plans are for 
the various governmental agencies, what the evacuation plan is, what their employees, which one of their employees are going to remain uh, during an event and which are going to evacuate. Really working alongside uh, your counties, your municipalities, in our case, uh, the Port Authority, uh, to ensure that everybody understands what our role is and how we can help. We're really a clearinghouse and, a, and an intermediary between the other governmental agencies at the federal, the state, and local level, and industry. And so we really want to ensure that they understand how we can help them, uh, particularly if they're resource constrained, as most uh, companies are today, uh, given the pandemic. So uh, really, that just continues to go to customer engagement. And then the other thing is just understanding the process. Oftentimes, there's confusion in terms of the process. And and, and just in, in terms of how to take care of your own people uh, and making sure that they have everything that they need. From our standpoint, our most precious asset are our employees. And so what we do is we ensure that our employees have resources to help their families, help themselves plan for a hurricane, plan for an evacuation, certainly have a checklist available for them to keep their homes and their loved ones safe. We want them to make sure that when they're going through an event uh, and they're here and part of our incident management team, that they can uh, have that, that, that peace of mind that their family and their loved ones are in good hands and they're being taken care of whether they've been evacuated or they've sheltered in place. So really taking care of your employees too uh, is something first and foremost that's gonna make any organization uh, more resilient and better for it. Excellent. And Eric, a final message to your response partners. What do you need from them at this point in time in the spirit of preparedness that you talked about? Well, you know, Sean hit the nail on the head from the standpoint of customers and from what companies should do. And it's really the same thing when it comes down to uh, first responders. First off, we couldn't do what we do without it being a real team effort and having the coordination that we get from local, state and federal authorities. Uh, we're all in this together and the key really is to plan uh, around you know what are the requirements who's going to be responsible for what areas uh, put that plan in place drill that plan practice it, find out where the weaknesses are uh, fix those weaknesses in the off season and then you know when a storm comes in execute around the plan and stay disciplined to the process uh, you know, it gives you great opportunity to deal again with what I said before, the curveballs, if you've already taken care of 80 or 90 percent of the process because you're familiar with it, you drilled it, and you trained. Uh, what you find are really well-run organizations that have trained and are prepared uh, are much more calm. And they're, when they're calm, they're clear-eyed, they think straightly, they're much more productive. And, and that's really because they have a good plan. They've executed around that plan. And then they can deal with the unexpected uh, that will come. And we'll all work together in order to make sure that the, you know, we get the economy back up and open uh, just as quickly as possible and get people's lives back to normal. Uh, it really is a team sport. And so it, it really does require everybody on the team uh, to be prepared, do their jobs when it occurs, and, uh, and then, you know, stay communicative, very communicative and, you know, connected uh, throughout the process. But if we do it all together, then, uh, you know, we'll get through this. Even with a global pandemic, 
in the middle of a hurricane season. Eric, Sean, as you both said, there, there are going to be resource challenges. To be able to do that, you have to be agile. To be agile, you have to drill. You have to be able to have a plan. You have to communicate effectively. The two of you have communicated all of those points extraordinarily effectively. I want to thank you again for joining us in the CIRWI conversation and highlighting the steps that both of you are taking in Florida Power and Light in the Port of Corpus Christi to ensure that during this hurricane season, we can do everything possible. You can do everything possible to make sure that your customers, your clients can get through it, can be safe, and can go on to it as much of a normal life as quickly as they can. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you, Carlos. Thanks for having us.